Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14 uh, this morning. That's page 948 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. We've been studying the book of Romans for nearly a year now, and we're 13 chapters into this book. There's not a whole lot more left, but um, Paul has said a lot here in this uh, book. I mean, come Tuesday morning, I have trouble remembering what I preached the, the previous Sunday, and here we have you know, nearly 13 full chapters so far that we've covered. He's, he's talked about what God has done through Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. He's talked about how a person becomes a Christian, um, how we are justified by faith in Christ. He's also talked about how we as Christians ought to live now in light of what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and in particular, the last few weeks, we've been looking at how we're to relate to other people, what our, what our basic obligations are uh, toward others. And um, like I said, it's a lot to take in, and, and Paul does something very helpful here in our passage today. He takes really all that he's been saying about how we as Christians are to relate to other Christians and to people outside of the church, and he boils it down to one thing. Uh, he, he summarizes all the different pieces of that instruction and gives us um, one really easy idea to remember, and, and here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but, but that's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul has been getting at through all the different things he's said. This is what he's been urging us to do. That's our basic responsibility toward others. And in, in this passage in particular today, Paul's going to talk about why. The why behind loving your neighbor. What are, what's the motivation? What, what are the, the reasons for loving our neighbors as ourselves? So let me read our passage, Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, and I'll read all the way down through verse 14. This is God's word. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together one more time. Our God and Father, we ask this morning that you would send out your light and your truth. 
We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the the wonderful news of your Son, uh, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for us and now dwelling in us. We pray that you would plant your word of grace deep, deep within us and cause it to bear much fruit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at the passage today and think about why we ought to love our neighbors, Paul gives us two reasons. Number one, because love fulfills the law. And number two, because you know what time it is. Love fulfills the law. And second, you know what time it is. So, so first, let's think about this, this first reason. Love your neighbor because love fulfills the law. Paul talks about this in verses 8 to 10, and he, he begins by saying that the only thing we should owe other people is love. The only thing we should owe other people is love. And, and let me just point something out here. Um, some Christians read this to mean that uh, Paul's forbidding taking on debt of, of any sort. You know, just, just pay cash. Um, don't take out loans for things like, even things like a, a home or a vehicle or education. And, and certainly, it's unwise to take on debt that you can't repay, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a way to ruin a life, and it leads to, to lots of headaches. But Paul's not forbidding taking out loans here. Um, those kinds of decisions really are, are matters of wisdom, and, and that's not his point. Paul's not giving financial advice here. This is a a rhetorical move. You remember last week in verse 7, Paul said, pay what is owed to whomever it's owed. And and in particular, he talks about paying your taxes. And he he uses that idea, uh, pay what you owe, to transition to talking about what we owe our neighbors. And what we owe our neighbors is love, is love. Um, God created us as as human beings, as people created in his image. He designed us to give and receive love. And as God's people, he calls us to show love to um, our neighbors. This is how God has uh, designed human relationships to work. And and Paul says here, love is a, in a sense, a, a debt that we owe to the people in the pews next to us to the people in our neighborhoods, to the people we come into contact with on a, on a daily basis. And, and, and the interesting thing about this debt is um, we never finish paying it. You know, I remember the day I finished paying off my student loans, and it, it felt like such a relief. Uh, we can never say with this debt, I've done enough. I've loved so-and-so enough. I don't need to love them any longer. They, they, I've paid them back. No, this is a, an ongoing um, obligation and debt. Now, Paul says, oh, no one anything except to, to love. And, and, and twice here in, in the passage, he highlights the fact that loving your neighbor fulfills the aim of the law. You see there in verse 8, he says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then again in verse 10, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And by law here, he means the Mosaic law, the old covenant system. Now, why this emphasis on on law? 
on love fulfilling the law. And, and we're going to see more about this as we get to chapters 14 and 15, but the, the church there in Rome, there, there's a lot of um, arguments going on amongst the Christians in Rome about the Mosaic law. You have, you have Jewish Christians in the church who grew up uh, observing the Mosaic law. You have Gentile Christians in the church for whom uh, that wasn't an issue, and now they're together trying to follow Jesus Christ together, and, and they're arguing, you know, is, is the Mosaic law still binding on Christians? Do, do we need to follow the, the Old Testament dietary regulations? Do we need to observe the Jewish festivals? Do we need to keep the, the Jewish Sabbath? And, and there's ugly, uh, from what we can tell in the book, ugly disagreements about uh, these things. We'll talk more about them next week. Um, maybe even the beginnings of division over these things. And, and Paul's already answered these questions. If you've been with us throughout Romans, I mean, Paul has said, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not under the law. We are not under the Mosaic law, but under grace. But, but here he takes a different tack. Uh, it provides a different answer. In essence, he says, look, you're arguing over these things. You've missed the point. You've missed the point, the aim of God's law is love, not anger and division. Look at what he says in, in verse 9. He says, for the, the commandments, and then he goes on to quote several of the Ten Commandments from the second table of the law, these, these commandments dealing with our relationship with others. He says, these and, and any other commandment, so he, he casts the net widely, any other commandment, they're summed up. They're summed up in this one word, this one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. And, and why does love of neighbor fulfill the law? Well, he says in verse 10, because love does no wrong, does no harm to a neighbor. That, that, that's the aim of all these commandments. I don't know if you've, you know, if when you've read through maybe the Ten Commandments and you think, there's a lot of uh, thou shalt nots there. Is God just, you know, some kind of cosmic killjoy trying to prevent us from having any fun? No, that's not it. These laws all aim at promoting love of neighbor, not doing harm to one's neighbor. Love is the, the thread that binds all these commands together. And um, Paul's not really teaching anything new here, right? Um, Jesus taught this, right? That um, this is how he summarized the law's teaching. If you could condense all that's there in the Mosaic law down to two things, it would be love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, in, in the reading that we heard a few moments ago from Luke chapter 10, you have this uh, lawyer, a, a religious scholar, comes to Jesus and uh, really tries to trap Jesus with a question about the law. And um, Jesus, as he often does, just turns it back on him. The man says, you know, in essence, how do, I, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, what's your summary of the law? How do you read it? And, and the man replies, in essence, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus says, yeah, you've got it. That's the right answer. Um, now, the lawyer's problem was, uh, he thought that that was no problem. Uh, sure, love God, love my neighbor, got it, I'm, I'm good. And um, 
The reality is, you know, many of us <laughs> might be tempted to think likewise. The reality is uh, we don't do that, do we? Uh, in, in fact, we, we fail miserably at it. Um, that, that's why we need Jesus. I mean, he's the, the only person who has ever perfectly loved God and loved neighbor. Um, you know, he, he did for us the very things we fail to do. And, um, you know, now through faith in him, we are clothed with Jesus' record of perfect neighbor love. And he's now transforming us into people who are learning to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so Paul says, love your neighbor because love fulfills the law. You know, in, in one sense, it's a, it's a very simple principle, right? That's, that's something you can remember. What, is, what does Romans teach me about how I should relate to other people? Love my neighbor. <laughs> Owe them nothing except love. It's, it's a simple principle, in no way simple to do, but certainly simple to remember. And, and that's why it's so helpful here. Um, when, when I read a book, I typically uh, read the conclusion first. Um, if it's a nonfiction book, you know, I'll, I'll skim the intro and then I go to the conclusion and read the conclusion because I need the big idea. I need to know where this is going to make sense of all the, the particulars. You know, it's, it's easy to get lost in the details if you forget the main point, right? And, and loving your neighbor is the, the main point behind all the Bible's instruction about relating to others, um, you know, the, the Bible's full of uh, relational wisdom, isn't it? The Bible's full of instruction about how to relate to others, but it doesn't speak to every specific circumstance we encounter, does it? Um, you know, so what about those circumstances, the ones where the, the, that the Bible doesn't address directly? I mean, parents, those of you who are parents, you, you know what this is like, right? I mean, if, if you went to a car dealership and, and bought a new vehicle, they're going to send you home with a bunch of uh, paperwork and a manual that tells you all about that vehicle, what all the different buttons do, and, and how it works, and how to service it. I mean, you give birth to a kid, and, and there's no manual. And, and you know, they, there's all these questions. What do I do with these kids? And especially as they start to, to get older, you know, what should I let my kids watch and, and not watch? What should I let them listen to? Um, you know, how much screen time is appropriate? When are they old enough to, to have their own phone? And, you know, all these questions, and, and you can't find a, bi a verse that tells you the answer. Or, or, you know, in the workplace, you have a, a coworker who, who's not pulling their weight, and it's causing headaches for you, for, for your team, for everyone else. And, and you know they need this job, and so um, you're not sure, what do I do? You know, do I say something to my supervisor? Do I say something to them? Um, how do I go about it? What do I do? There's all these kinds of situations where there's no chapter and verse that provides the answer. But there is this principle that Paul's laying out here. Do no harm. Do good to your neighbor. Show love to your neighbor. I mean, there's, there's, that needs to be fleshed out, but if, if that's all you start with, that's going to get you going in the right direction, loving your neighbor. And so, you know, 
in those kinds of situations, it's, it's good to ask ourselves questions. You know, I'm trying to figure out what's the right course of action. And, and to ask myself, is, is the response I'm, I'm starting to consider, is, is it uh, motivated by love? Or is it really, I, I'm frustrated, I'm angry? Um, uh, is it motivated by selfishness? Will it promote my neighbor's well-being? Is this going to do them good? Um, is it in keeping with God's word? Um, you know, does this response honor my neighbor's identity as a, an image bearer? And then, of course, the, the final kind of check, would Jesus treat someone this way? That, that's always a good question to ask. Um, th that's really what it comes down to, right? Is, is this a Christ-like response? I mean, if, if Jesus wouldn't treat someone this way, um, I, I need, really need to rethink my, my plan here for responding to this person. So why love your neighbor? Why make love a priority? And, and Paul says, first, because it fulfills the law. Love of neighbor is what God's law aims at. It's, it's our most basic responsibility toward others. But he, he gives a second reason in verses 11 to 14, um, why love your neighbor? Second, because you know what time it is. You know what time it is. Look at how verse 11 begins. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. Uh, besides what? Um, besides, loving your, besides loving your neighbor because love fulfills the law, love your neighbor because you know what time it is. And so Paul is saying here, um, knowing the time in which you live, you and I live, will help you love your neighbor well. And so we, we need to ask, well, what time is it? I mean, my watch says it's 11.16, but that's, that's not what Paul's talking about here. What time is it? He uses a, a metaphor, um, very familiar imagery here, night and day, darkness and light, sleep and, and waking up. And, um, you know, uh, many of us, if not most of us, use alarm clocks or, or cell phones to wake us in the morning. Um, in Paul's day, uh, the sun was your alarm clock. Um, most people rose with the sun or, or shortly before it and began their day. And Paul's saying here, we live in this time where a, a new day has begun to dawn. Um, and we just celebrated this during the, the seasons of Advent and Christmas. You know, so much of the symbolism during that time of year revolves around light and darkness. Uh, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has, has come. He, he came into this world that was shrouded in the darkness of sin and death, and through his death and resurrection, a, a new day has dawned. The light has begun to shine, and not just in this world, but the, the light of the gospel has broken into our lives. And, and so Paul's saying, look, the, the sun has begun to peek over the, the eastern horizon. There's glimmers of light. Um, but we don't yet live in the, in the full noonday sun. Um, we're waiting for that day when Christ comes again. And so 
what time is it? Well, it's, it, the time we live in now is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And when will he come again? We don't know. I don't know if you were hoping I would answer that question. Sorry to disappoint. We, we don't know. No one knows. But we do know this, Paul says in verse 11. Look at what he says there. He says, for salvation, talking about final salvation, uh, when Christ comes, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's, it's nearer to us now. Um, every day that's passed since you put your faith in Jesus Christ means Jesus' second coming is, is one day closer. And, and, and that reality, Paul wants us to see, should shape how we live now. You know, if, if you knew Jesus was, was going to return tomorrow, um, what would you do today? You know, if, if somehow you could know there's 24 hours left until Jesus returns, how would you spend the time? What would you um, do? How would it change the way you go about your life? Um, some of you know the, the name Horatio Spafford. He was a, a 19th century uh, a lawyer, American man. Um, he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing it pretty regularly around here. And, um, you know, great hymn. I'm glad we sing it. He, he had some peculiar views about um, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, you know, he was convinced that Jesus was going to return any day. And so he moved his family and a bunch of friends to Jerusalem. And every morning, uh, Horatio Spafford and a few others would, would trek up to the top of the Mount of Olives with a cup of tea, waiting for Jesus. They wanted to be the first to greet Jesus and hand him a, a hot cup of tea when he returned. Um, and obviously, Spafford's hopes of being the first to greet Jesus were dashed. Um, Spafford died uh, towards the end of the 19th century, and Jesus hasn't returned yet. But, but let's say Spafford was there to greet Jesus at his return. Um, I don't know that Jesus would have commended him for his hospitality. Um, now, I should say to Spafford's credit, he and his family were, were very much about serving the poor, and they did a lot of that there in Jerusalem. But, but living in light of Jesus' near return... Um, it doesn't require anything crazy. You know, it, it's not like sell all your belongings, uh, build an underground shelter, and, and wait for the, the aftermath. Um, living in light of Jesus' near return, it, it looks a lot more ordinary. Um, it looks like simple acts of neighbor love. You know, befriending that kid at school who, who sits alone every day at lunch. Um, bringing a, a meal to a, a neighbor who's just had surgery and, and can't make their own food. Um, doing your work well so that others benefit from it. Um, serving the poor, the homeless, the, the needy, the, the nobodies. That, that is what living in light of Jesus' soon return uh, looks like. Now, Paul's not, not done yet. Um, he, he talks in verses 11 and 12 about the second reason why we ought to love our neighbor. And then he goes on, verses 13 and 14, to draw out some of the implications. 
Um, and he, he uses a, another metaphor. I, I think Paul was just, his imagination was probably so vivid. Um, this metaphor, a different one, changing clothes. And he, he puts it negatively uh, in verse 12. You can see what he says there. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. That, that language there, cast off or put off the works of darkness. It's, it's the, the idea of taking off a, a set of clothes. And Paul says, don't dress in, in that outfit any longer. And he gives us examples of the kinds of things he's talking about. Verse 13, what do the, the works of darkness look like? They look like wild, drunken parties, um, sexual sin. Uh, he even adds their quarreling and, and jealousy. And it's not a random list. I mean, you know, these things often all go together, don't they? The, the drunkenness, the, the sexual sin, the arguments. And he says that, that kind of lifestyle, he says it's, it's not fitting for someone who, who lives in the daylight, kind of mixing metaphors here. He, he says, puts it another way, verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, that word provision there, it's the idea of, of giving forethought to something. And Paul's saying, don't, don't dwell on the ways that you can satisfy your sinful desires. Um, don't make plans to sin. I mean, so much of the, the struggle against temptation and sin is, it, it begins in the mind, doesn't it? With what we dwell on, what we think about, what we allow ourselves to imagine the, the twisted reasoning we, we convince ourselves uh, with that, that it's okay to do what, what God forbids. Um, that's why Paul, back in, in chapter 12, he said, be, be transformed by the renewal of your minds, by the renewal of your minds, growing in, in holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness and, and neighbor love, it's about more than just behavior modification. Okay, I got to clean up my act and do things a little differently. It involves inner transformation, learning to think differently, learning to um, see with new eyes. Uh, Martin Luther um, had a real gift for expressing uh, truth in, in very simple, memorable ways. And on this issue of, of temptation and the, and the mind and he said, uh, this is what he said, he said, you can stop the birds from flying, or you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you don't have to let them build a nest in your hair. In other words, you, you can't do anything about the temptations. They're going to come, but you don't need to give them time and attention and thought. And so negatively, Paul says, put off the old clothes, put off the old clothes. And then positively, he says two things. Uh, verse 12, put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, different metaphors, but they're really getting at the same reality. Um, put on the, the new set of clothes. Now, there's a sense in which Christians have already put on Christ, right? Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have 
put on Christ. Baptism, there's nothing magical about the waters of baptism. Um, Baptism acts out what is already true of everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And, And Paul says, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have been clothed with Christ. Well, what does it mean to be clothed with Christ? Um, in part, it means that we are um, legally righteous before God. We have been justified through faith. We, we've been clothed in Christ's spotless righteousness. We have a, a new identity. If you call it our in Christ identity, that's who we are. God sees us in his son. He sees us clothed in uh, Jesus' righteousness. And, and that's true of every believer. Every believer has been clothed in Christ. And, and Paul's been talking about that um, everywhere in the book of Romans, okay? So he's used lots of different pictures for it, but this is what he's been talking about, that we're in Christ, clothed in Christ. But here he's saying, because that's true already, if you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, because that's true of you already, we have to live like it. We have been clothed with Christ. Now we need to live out the reality of that day by day. Um, maybe you've heard it put this way. Um, the growing in, in the Christian life is about becoming who you are in Christ. Clothed in Christ, we're learning how to live as though that's true. Or, or the way Paul puts it in chapter 6, uh, you have died to sin in Christ. Um, sin is no longer your master. It no longer, um, uh, it, you've been set free from its enslaving power. He says, you have died to sin, now live like it. Because you're united to Jesus Christ, you need to live as though you are dead to sin. Um, become in practice, in real, genuine experience, become in practice what you already are legally and positionally in Christ. And so, how can you and I, Paul's been emphasizing here, love of neighbor, how can you and I um, love our neighbors? Where does the, the power and the ability um, come from? And, and it should come as no surprise here, God's answer is not more law. His answer here is Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means trust him. Depend on him. Put your faith and your hope and your trust in him. And, that, and that's not just a one-time thing. This is a, it's daily discipleship. Day by day, putting your trust in Christ, depending on his grace and power, um, remembering what he has done for you, remembering who you now are in Christ, and, and living out what he is, is working in you. That, that is what Paul is getting at here. Now, some of you maybe, you know, you've never done that. You've never put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, maybe you, you've heard the gospel maybe even many times. Um, maybe you even agree with it. You, you believe it's true, but um, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe, maybe you're like that lawyer in the story we read earlier, trying to justify 
himself. Um, Only Jesus can deal with your guilt and the power of your sin. Um, There was a a man in his early 30s, uh, well-educated, successful in his career, um, but he was enslaved to self-love, enslaved to uh, sexual sin and sensual desire. And um, he, at, at one point in his life, he became interested in Christianity, at least at, a, at an intellectual level. He, he loved philosophy, and so um, some aspects of Christian doctrine appealed to him. Um, but as he became more and more interested in Christianity, started to understand it better, he was really miserable because he, he was just in bondage to his sin. And, and he realized he could do nothing to set himself free. And so one day he, he went out into um, a friend's garden to just uh, pray. He's so desperate. He got down on his knees to pray. And while he's on his knees praying, he hears the sound of, of children's voices nearby. And, and they were sort of singing, chanting a, a song. And he, and he kept hearing them say, tole lege, tole lege. It's Latin. Uh, take up and read. And he, he had a Bible with him. And so he thought, I guess it's a sign. <laughs> I'll open up the Bible. And, and guess which passage he just randomly turned to? It was this one here in, in Romans 13. And, and just... Uh, jumping off the page at him were these words, the words of uh, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the man realized at that point that um, the, only Jesus could set him free. Only Jesus could make him right with God. And it was a turning point in his life. He put his faith in, in Jesus Christ that day. And it was the, the beginning of an entirely new life. And, and some of you have probably already guessed That man's name was Augustine, the fourth century church father, one of the most um, influential figures in church history. Uh, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would uh, urge you, if you've never done that, put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. I mean, he promises to save you. He promises to set you free. And, and if you've already put on the Lord Jesus Christ, keep trusting him day in, day out, remembering his grace to you, remembering that he loved us when we were unlovely, and, and let that transform how you relate to other people. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our our life and our salvation. He is our righteousness and redemption. We thank you for his great love for us. We pray that you would continue to form us into people who live and love like Jesus, all to your glory, we pray. Amen.